Hello, everyone, to a new conversation about software engineering. Today is the second episode of our three-part series with Alex Premley, Site Reliability Engineer at Google and author of the Open Source Art of SLO Training. So we, we still uh, are in our deep dive on service level objectives, architectural requirements uh, for operations. And yeah, the show today covers um, availability uh, requirements and service level objectives, how to do that, how to do a deep dive into that. Um, we talk about dependency graphs and availability calculus. You can imagine in a, in a microservice system, you have many moving parts. How do you calculate uh, your availability? We talk about unknown availability SLOs. We talk about uh, communication of availability to all kinds of stakeholders. We discuss the uh, service level indicator menu, you know, where to measure what. We have several places where we can uh, measure um, availability at the user level, load balancer at the service level and so on. Um, we discuss all the pros and cons of those uh, of, of, of those possibilities and when and how to combine them. And we are closing the episode with uh, reporting. Please enjoy. So go going back to availability, but a little bit, uh, you know, to, to, to have a different uh, look on availability. So usually um, when I want to define an availability SLO for my service, my service X, you know, whatever it is, uh, search or payment or product detail page or, or you name it. Unfortunately, it has some sort of dependency on something like the platform. It calls external services like, I don't know, SAP or Elasticsearch or whatever. We need storage. Those pesky and, providers. Sorry? I said those pesky cloud providers. Yes, <laughs> for example, for example. Yeah, but also just other services I depend on if I have a microservices um, architecture. And um, I mean, obviously, those dependencies influence the SLO of my, my service. So what's your, what's your take on, on this one? Well, if, if they're internal dependencies, then you've got some extra options because you can kind of go talk to them. Um, it's definitely worth checking if they have any published SLOs internally. And then maybe if you, you can go sit down with the teams if you've got uh, some spare time or these days, like have a Zoom call with the team that run the services and have a chat about like what your expectations as a user should be. They'll be interested in how you're using their service and hopefully they'll want to get your perspective on their reliability. So you can, like, it can be a win-win situation for everyone. They get real data from their users about how they're experiencing the service reliability. And they can also like hopefully um, figure out, you can also helpfully figure out whether your intended usage is going to cause problems for that service. If like, if you go sit down and chat to them and say like, Hey, I, I want to, I want to send you a half a million QPS and then you see their eyebrows hit the roof, then you know that maybe <laughs> they're not prepared for that and they might have some problems with that. And like, they'll also be able to give you some idea of whether they think they can provide the reliability that you think you need, like going in there with a, like a, an idea of a goal, like say, I'd like to get three nines out of your service. Do you think that's possible? That's going to mm. anchor the discussion. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to, to, to second that. Um, I was once working with an insurance and they had an authentication service. 
And uh, there, you know, the, those people, of course, knew that this authentication service is quite critical, but, um, you know, it, that it's also critical during the weekends for some services, not only, you know, for, uh, not only during normal working days and that we have increasing load and stuff like that. For them, that was kind of surprising. Yeah. And they, they said, yeah, we, we cannot, we cannot provide you that sort of reliability. But if more and more services are, uh, you know, of your dependencies are coming and saying, you know, we have the following requirements, it also reflects in their backlog. So, you know, it's easier for them to say to their product owner, oh, our clients need more reliability. We have to work on it. Yeah. yeah. I think authentication is a great example um, because it's everything has a dependency on authentication. Like whatever you're doing, you need to know, like, who the person is doing it and like whether they're allowed to do it. Authenticate and authorization like underpins most businesses. And so it, they often have higher reliability requirements. And I think they're also, because they tend not to have many dependencies themselves, they're also a great place to start if you're trying to move toward your business towards having SLOs for services, like starting with authentication. Everyone can usually agree that authentication needs to be reliable because it's a core dependency for a lot of things. So you can... And because it doesn't have any depend many dependencies of its own, and because um, like it's also theoretically a relatively simple service, like is this person authenticated? What authorization do they have to do things? Um, it's a reduced problem space to get started on. So it, they, it can be a great place to start when you're trying to bring SLOs into a, a company. Hmm. Yeah. So that. That's if you have internal dependencies. But now um, the tricky part, I guess, are external services. Yeah, um, do everything in-house. That's <coughs> <laughs> depending on external services is more risky, and like especially if like you're building your entire business on top of a cloud provider, like you you're taking on a bit a, a risk there. And like one of the things that the CRE team was formed to help mitigate is that risk because like uh, I gave you the example earlier of Shopify having their millions of dollars per minute run rate like that's that's built on GCP and they're happy to say that and um, like one of the th we work quite closely with Shopify and CRE and like one of the things we're trying to do is help them have the confidence to run their business on top of GCP. Like we have, we do shared postmortems with them. We um, are there to respond to their instance in some cases because that helps them have the confidence to run on top of a cloud provider. And that that it's, that's a very extreme case. Like because they want to reach high reliability, and that means that Google has to be there to help them do that because like they have this massive external dependency on us. Um, so if you, you remember the discussion about SLAs earlier, like you're only like as a, someone depending on an external service, you're only likely to get compensation for major outages. And even that won't make up for the loss of user trust that your, mm. your customers have experienced. So one way to cope with this is to measure SLIs for your dependency separately, perhaps even set your own targets for them. Like if Spotify, uh, not Spotify, sorry, Shopify came to us, it's difficult. They're very, very similar words. If Shopify came to us and said, "Hey, like we expect this level of reliability from you," that would that that kind of discussion is really helpful because, like as you say, it's something that we can take to product teams and say, "Okay, so we need to engineer for this because our biggest customer, some of our biggest customers, are demanding it." Um, but by measuring the performance of your dependencies in isolation, you can get insights that you can feed into the engineering decisions you have. So, like say, if you need four nines from a cloud provider 
and you're frequently experiencing only three and a half, you maybe you need to adjust your usage patterns. Maybe you need to file a support ticket. Like maybe you can start a discussion with the provider to say, hey, like we our business is suffering because your reliability isn't good enough for us, and like we don't want to have to leave because like that's an expensive thing to do. What can we do about making this better? Hmm. Yeah, I um, I think one additional thing uh, I I find interesting with uh, measuring the let's say the re reliability of my dependency is that I understand my reliability of the dependency. I mean, how often how often um, do we fail because of uh, let's say the dependency failure, but yeah I, i i have no clear numbers how often it actually happens so and if i if i have i mean i can always do something about it right and yeah. um so i for, that is a very concrete um uh work item that i want to understand the yeah the reliability of my uh of my dependency because that's obviously important and i think there is one One absolutely fantastic uh, uh, paper about uh, dealing with um, external dependencies. Uh, you, you mentioned Ben Trainer, um, the, the VP of 24/7 at Google. So he and his colleagues, or your colleagues, um, they they wrote a great uh, uh, article for the ACMQ. And it's uh, called, I put it also in the show notes, the calculus of service availability. And that, for me, it was, from many perspectives, uh, an eye-opener, I think, fantastic paper. And it, it would be a show on its own to, to discuss that uh, paper. But uh, let, let's just pick one example here. So I have, I have a service A. And this service A has 10 critical dependencies. So not only one, it has 10. And which itself have, have critical dependencies because that's how you need to think about it, right? So I have a, I have always a dependency tree. Mm -hmm. This is the world and, of microservices, um, right? Uh, sorry? It's the world of microservices, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, especially if you are, uh, if you do, um, Netflix style microservices. And so, so you have this dependency tree. And now I need to calculate the availability of my service A. Yeah? And I, I would ignore for a second that we, that we can do a lot to mitigate the risk of a dependency failing. You know, that's, that's a story for another day. But yeah, now I have this dependency tree. And how do I calculate the availability of my service A? How, how do we do that? Ah, so <laughs> this was a... This was a fun part for me to figure out an answer to because um, I had to go and read the paper and think about it a lot. And this was it was interesting. It was an eye-opening paper to me too. And I think um, if you're gonna if you can excuse just a little bit of pedantry from my side, um, the um, you can estimate an expected availability using the maths in the paper. But it, what it says is you have to measure the actual availability achieved over a given time window because the events affecting that availability occur randomly. Like you don't schedule an outage on the fourth day of every month on the fourth day. Of every <laughs> like that's, that's how you um, meet your targets, right? That's, that's not how these things work, unfortunately. So um, like it's, it's, you don't, you can't really calculate the availability of service. You have to measure the availability of service over a, a time window in the past. Um, but you can estimate 
what you can expect to receive based on like the availability for your dependencies. But the, the paper proposes that you kind of run this the other way around. You start by declaring a desired availability for your parent service. Like you set an SLO and effectively you say, I want to get three nines out of the top level service. And then you run the math the other way around to figure out the required availability for the, the dependencies must provide. So that's it's kind of a different way of looking at things, I think, than the one you were proposing, where you you're running going upwards from the leaves to the root. You go downwards and you say, the, if the root wants to achieve three nines, uh, what do I need to get from each of these dependencies? Which mm. I think it's it's easier when you start talking to, to, to the dependencies to have like to be able to say like I want to achieve this, and I think because the fan out from my service to your service is 10x, I need you to be 10x more reliable. And that's it's going to be a difficult pill for them to swallow, but at least you have some data to show why you want that performance out of it. Mm. And so that said, um, I think there are two key points that the paper makes with regards to your question. I think that firstly, firstly, service dependencies are rarely unique to the service, especially when you have like your service mesh, Istio, web, words, buzz, buzzwords, et cetera, et cetera, service mesh. I've said that already. Uh, I got lost in the buzz. <laughs> Firstly, your service dependencies are rarely unique to the service, especially when you've got a nested hierarchy, like we were saying that you've got a service mesh, you've got microservices, all of that kind of thing. Like service A is going to depend on service B, service B is going to depend on C, and they all depend on your authentication service, but you also talk to service D that depends on service C, and then God knows what's happening in the like all the other services you hit. So the dependencies of your critical dependencies are not going to be disjoint sets, like everything is going to depend on authentication somewhere down the bottom. And it doesn't really matter if you depend on a particular service via one or many paths, because mm. authentication's down, everything's down, doesn't really matter. Um, so the unavailability of each transitive service dependency can only contribute once to the top level unavailability of your service. That's like that's one of the, the key things that the paper says. So yeah. you like so that has a consequence for the maths, because like if you run it upwards, then you're saying, okay, well, if this fails, then it contributes via service B, it contributes via service C, and then you get a complete different number if you start at the top and work down and say, well, okay, I need the reliability of the service to be X because I depend on it, I, because I depend on it, and I need it to be this reliable. Rather, um, and it doesn't matter how I depend on it; it just matters that I depend on it, and I have this requirement for it. <clears throat> Sorry, that got a bit kind of off into the weeds there. Anyway, secondly, secondly, while you while you say that you want to ignore the possibility of mitigations, that's kind of what the bulk of the paper concentrates on. Like the, It's proposing a rule of thumb that your critical dependencies need to provide an additional nine of reliability compared to the parent service. And this has some pretty stark implications for running complex multi-layered services reliably. In many cases, risk mitigation is the only effective strategy available because it's simply not physically possible for the human beings to respond in time to preserve the availability of a service. Like if you've got a nested hierarchy that's six levels deep, then you add an each le <clears throat> additional le uh, nine of reliability at each level, then you go from like two nines to seven nines or eight nines. Mm. I can do maths. Uh, you go from two nines to eight nines and like eight nines is just like five nines is almost impossible to meet in reality. Eight nines is like, that's marketing speak. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I cannot just go somewhere and say, uh, 
I need uh, eight nines or seven, even five nines. I mean, it's, it's crazy, as you say. I mean, for uh, maybe not crazy for Google, but for uh, normal, let's say normal companies, five nines is already pretty crazy, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I see um, like seven nines talking about when you're talking about storage durability, like and durability being like, if I write a byte, the chance, what are the chances of me not being able to read that byte back? because mm -hmm. storage systems are pretty reliable and um you also see it in a lot of um a lot of literature that's talking about availability in terms of the system is up and running versus the system is down like the the binary black and white things because like when you like if you're talking about a mainframe kind of thing the mainframe availability is they can reach seven or eight nines because um they're built in with like hugely redundant systems so that the it can keep running even if parts of it fail <clears throat> I had a um, so you mentioned IBM before we started recording. Um, uh, I used to work for a startup that got bought by IBM, and when we got bought, I they had this really interesting story about mainframes. There was a, apparently a, a guy who was a, a salesman in Texas who used to sell mainframes, and like one of his favorite sales tactics was literally to pull a gun out and fire a bullet at one of the processors, <laughs> and he'd do this while the customers were in the room. Um, like, I think you'd probably use an air gun or something rather than an actual bullet because, like, you know, danger and things like that. But this is Texas, so maybe not. I don't know. Um, and this story may even be apocryphal. I don't know. But it's a lovely story. And so he'd do this while the system was running and the, the customers were looking at the console prompt. And all you'd see is, like, CPU 4 offline. And the whole system would just be like, eh, oh, it's the CPU. It's been shot. It's fine. I'm only bleeding a little bit. <laughs> paraphrase Monty Python. It's just a flesh wound. <laughs> Yeah, um, you 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 already said it in a um, in, in, let's say in a in in in, in a partially uh, partial sentence um, that I have to measure um, uh, my dependencies. I, I just I just want to to make it a little bit more explicit. So. Um, I obviously have also dependencies which do not offer an SLO. You know, it's just unknown. Yeah. And uh, okay, you you said I if if that's the case, I have to um, I have to start measure measuring it and go to those to to the folks and tell them I have a requirement, uh, an SLO requirement. But 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 is there anything else uh, I can do if uh, one of my dependencies has an unknown SLO? Uh I mean, it's difficult. Like, it it usually comes down to engineering work. I think, um, like most third-party dependencies uh, are almost certainly not going to tell you about their SLOs. I mean, they may well be measuring them. I know, like for example, Google measures a ton of SLOs about the performance of GCP, but customers don't usually get to see these things. Um, but I think uh, what it comes down to is. Um, if you measure the reliability of your dependencies, then you know, you can figure out whether they're meeting the availability, the reliability that you need from them. And like that's this, the signal that you need, right? Like if they are meeting the reliability you need from them, then you don't, you don't need to do anything. And if they aren't, then you have to start putting mitigations in place. Like you can maybe find another third party that provides a service and use both of them and like fail over between one and the other if you need to. You can go talk to their sales teams and say, look, this simply isn't good enough. What are you going to do about it? 
there are mm. many options you have when you have data showing that the reliability of the third party is not what you need it to be. And until you have that data, you can't have the conversation, right? Mm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, how do I, switching gears a little bit uh, again, uh, how do I communicate uh, those service level objectives and get a buy-in? I mean, um, for some people, when I started with uh, SLOs and error budgets, um, although I think that the concept is absolutely fantastic, yeah, some people or maybe even all business stakeholders and um, uh, service level uh, service managers, sorry, not service level and service managers, they they thought this that that it's kind of a crazy idea to to just be fine with a certain amount of downtime, yeah. And uh, that's one thing. And the other thing is that if you if you reach a certain amount of downtime, then you're not allowed to, let's say, uh, deploy new features, for example, and only um, that you're only allowed to work on, on reliability. So to, to me, when I started out uh, with uh, SLOs and error budget, it's, it was kind of tricky to communicate that uh, to those people. So do you, do you have any recommendations um, on, on communication? I don't know about recommendations. It's a, like communication is a difficult skill and one that has to be practiced. Um, but uh, so I think it, the the mainframe example I gave just now is like where it comes where it kind of comes from. Like the the idea of the mainframe being up, being the availability of the service is like if the hardware is running and that's fine. The, that's where a lot of this kind of um, hundred percent thing come from because it's it's possible to build like highly redundant systems that can reach like seven or eight nines of hardware reliability like the hardware is on and the software is nominally running um, and so like the downtime is unacceptable mindset comes from that binary understanding of availability as the the mainframe is on that comes from running your large enterprise software on these huge vertically scaled servers when you have one server, that server is up or down. And when that server is down because of hardware failure, maybe a salesman's just shot the CPU or something, then that's definitively <laughs> bad. <clears throat> then what's more, like on these large enterprise systems, you update the software at most once a quarter, probably more like once a year, because like these these things tend to be huge projects, massive amounts of work. And then when you're doing that software update, you like you generally involve scheduled downtime. So the rate of change the systems experience is mostly zero. And you've got then these massive step changes where like you roll out a new version of Oracle and then you take down the entire mainframe for a weekend and nobody can use their bank or whatever. And that scheduled downtime is, I, I, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean here, but to me, this is kind of cheating because scheduled downtime is still downtime, but because you're telling people about it, you're, it doesn't count against your availability metrics. But like, this this doesn't translate to like you when you're running your services as, as a bunch of load balanced kubernetes pods in multiple regions on a cloud provider like everyone wants to do these days with devops and all um individual hardware failures they're invisible to your software and your users and on the other hand you're probably deploying new code at least once a week maybe even you know several times a day if you're like really speedy on this kind of thing so there's a constant rate of change in the system 
And while there's still the possibility of complete downtime for your service, there's also this broad spectrum of availability from the perspective of your users, because each change brings with it the risk of something going wrong. Like the, the, the mainframe, you can equate user, the user's experience of availability with the, the mainframe being on, because when the mainframe is on, it is serving, and the software is not changing in that time. And like you, or the, the biggest risk you've probably got to contend with is that maybe a disk fills up or something like that. And like you can, you can mitigate all of those risks ahead of time, I think, or most of them ahead of time. Um, so in the like a service mesh world, in a, like a like a microservices world, where you're changing things constantly, the the chances of something going wrong is much higher. Most of the time, like all will happen is a few users see a few errors, but um, most and that's bad for your users. But like, it's very rare that you see like a hundred percent everything is hard down. Mm. And so I think SLOs and error budgets, they provide you with the tools to deal with this kind of reality where availability isn't binary. And you, like each error you serve to your users is a slight decrement to the trust they have in you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's a good, that's a really good point. Um, and I think that's also super helpful uh, to, uh, yeah, to, to make clear that I mean, we, we also had that discussion before we started the podcast. Do you want to have five outages which take two minutes or 10 minutes and affects 10% of your customers? Or do you want to have one outage which affects 100% of the customers? It's not even an outage. It's a planned downtime, a scheduled downtime. And that for a day or something, yeah. And uh, still, some people think that the former is worse, which I, you know, I still cannot believe it. But yeah, that's how it is. But uh, yeah, looking at yeah SLOs is yeah it's it's way better, yeah. And um, and it helps to to communicate, uh, let's say, customer satisfaction. I still. Yeah, um, a long time ago, maybe five years or something, um, it was for, for one customer, it was totally okay to have those insane release weekends uh, where, you know, from Friday evening to Monday morning, everything was down, you know, scheduled downtime. Yeah. So that, that is more than 50 hours where you, every three months where you're completely unavailable. But, uh, if, you know, during a random day, you have like 30 minutes uh, outage. <laughs> People just freak out because, you know, you have a 30 minute outage, but nobody. And, and then, you know, the discussion is how can we avoid those uh, 30 minute outages? But nobody thinks really about the, the 50 hour scheduled downtime, which really annoys a lot of customers. Yeah, it's very much yeah. a mindset change. And I think um, when you're operating mainframes and you're not like, can you imagine trying to do uh, that, like an agile um, continuous deployment type thing with a, like a large Oracle database? Firstly, you don't get software releases from Oracle that like that, and secondly, like the the like updating the database is like a hugely risky thing for a bank that like completely relies on that that kind of thing. Um, uh, so it, it's very much a mindset change, and I don't. I don't necessarily think that it's the wrong thing to do because like when you've got this big step change in uh like software you 
need to have enough space to really work with that. Like, what happens if you you've rolled ninety percent of the way forward and then you discover a problem? Like, you need to be able to roll back, and that probably still takes a bunch of time. And like, they their approach to things is a product of the software environment they're working in. I think is where I'm going with this, and mm. and I think where they start having problems is trying to take that approach to a different software environment in the cloud where that like a lot of the assumptions that they're making and a lot of the um like fundamental building blocks operate quite differently like it just doesn't work and that's why we've got slos instead and like mm. this granular notion of availability because that's the software environment we're working in yeah yeah another um Larger topic I want to discuss is the measurement itself, and yeah, one of my one of my problems uh, I had to work on was, uh, for example, measuring latency. Yeah, so my initial reaction was that I measure the latency at the load balancer, and uh, and then we we had our major or our first major performance incident. And that was because some JavaScript library took like 40 seconds to render a search text field. You know, it was a, uh, wow. like a, um, a single page application. Not that I recommend to do that, but you know, that's was, that's just what it was. And it was, the and of course we, we, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And then I was like, okay, load balancer, you know, the, the, that didn't do the trick, you know? Um, so basically, um, we cannot only do load balancer. We also have to do some uh, client side, uh, measuring. So how do you approach the problem of measuring performance? How do I get started? What possibilities do I have and how should I incrementally, uh, improve measuring performance? So I'm to the specific question. I think we touched a bit on it, um, previously, where you were yeah. you were asking about uh, measuring latency before uh, the the thing you want to avoid when measuring is the variability. Like the the real problem happen like comes in when your SLI has a lot of variability in it, and that means you can't set a, a good static threshold that says these things are good and these things are bad. Um, and like, there's no one correct way to measure latency, but the the key thing to avoid is high variability in the underlying SLI. Uh, and as you've discovered, there are like advantages and disadvantages to most approaches. Like, um, a lot of this comes down to making engineering decisions about what trade-offs you want to make. Um, so, load balancer metrics, I think they're they're a really good. They're a solid foundation. They're a good place to start, especially if you're running in the cloud, because um, you often have these metrics already being recorded for you by the cloud load balancer. Um, th this gives you some historical data to look at. So you can say, okay, well, I know my application performance tends to vary between these boundaries. And that means if I set my threshold just slightly above those boundaries, then I'll know I can meet my SLO most of the time and I will catch any regressions. Um, and the load balancers, uh, the cloud ones especially, they will capture the serving time for the entire request without incorporating any of the variable load round trip latency between your users and the serving environment. And 
as I've explained before, and like we go we go into this in a reasonable amount of detail in the art of SLOs, the variance causes it to be very difficult to set an SLO threshold for. But um, as you've found, that doesn't cover client-side stuff. And then um, if you happen to do something that incurs a lot of latency in the render pipeline or in uh, other parts of the serving of the request, uh, you, you can't see that and you therefore you're not able to capture your user's experience correctly. Um, but you don't want to measure the entire request from the client side all the way through the internet to the servers and back again, because that variability from wherever your client happens to be on the internet is a real problem for setting a meaningful threshold. So it's not the the best way to go about this is probably to have two latency SLIs. If you can, and I think I mentioned this earlier as well. I think um, if you can have one that captures the client side render time, so it's from the time that the client receives the response from the server to the time where it's done. Uh, what was that phrase you used? The most like largest paint or something like that. Yeah, largest quantum field paint. Yeah, that's that sounds like a gr a great metric to have. Um, that's one latency SLI, and the second latency SLI is how quickly the server could take the request and render mm. the response. Um, and then you can combine the two of them to give you a good picture of how long it takes for the client to render uh, things, as well as for your service to serve the things, but without the latency in the middle, which you can't really do meaningful things about unless you're, you know, a large company. Uh, or want to pay, pay Cloudflare or, or other like content delivery networks a large quantity of money to get your service and have some caching close to your users. Okay, so now I I I know how to measure uh, the latency. The other possibility or the other the other thing I want to measure is uh, availability, and I find that. Um, equally hard. So I, I could look at an HTTP result, for example, um, a HTTP result code at the load balancer, but that wouldn't catch bugs like, you know, a, a button uh, disappeared or shrunk or, you know, when I, it, it shows some wrong data or it's the wrong format, you know, it, it expects JSON, but it's something else or it's not correct JSON. Um, how do you approach the problem of measuring availability? How do I get started and uh, what possibilities do I have and how uh, should I incrementally improve here? Uh, yeah, so <laughs> I I'm, I love HTTP response codes because they're, they're simple and quick. You know, they're, they're the things that we use in the art of SLOs is a, a, like the kind of canonical easy thing to introduce people to the idea of how to measure availability but you're right they they don't capture anything they're they're really mm. problematic they cuz like the 500 is the server's opinion of whether it served the correct response but um due to like bugs in software or um any other kind of thing it, it may send an okay response header but the wrong use like for example the wrong user's data or just a blank html body or whatever um and so, essentially, at that point, your SLI is lying to you because it's not an accurate representation of the user experience. So, the, the, again, there's not there's not really a single right answer because, like, you need to figure out where the gaps in 
your coverage are like what what is the delta between what your SLI is measuring and what your user is experiencing and how can you meaningfully like reduce that mm. um so the in the specific case of HTTP response codes that when they're they're quick to get started with because like again just like the latency if you're using a cloud load balancer you're going to have metrics already and you can see what your performance is already and they the nice thing is they're also conveniently real time like they you can get an instant response from your server and you can instantly measure it uh, to say, okay, what's happening right now with my service? And for many scenarios, this can be good enough, especially uh, if you're just looking to trigger instant response. Like if you're if you're serving 100% 500s to your users, you want to do something about that quickly and you want to know something about that quickly. And like 500 is kind of categorically bad. Like if you're serving 100% blank responses to your users, that that is also bad. But like, it's harder to detect. Um, mm. And if you need more coverage like that kind of thing, you generally like you you need to instrument the client or have some kind of synthetic client, uh, so that you're actually introspecting the response. Like you're having something that has an understanding of what the correct response looks like and is telling you if the response it's receiving when it sends requests to your server isn't correct. Like often uh, these these synthetic clients they can be harder to write, but like the the goal with one of those is that you you try and follow the actual journey that your user is trying to take with your service. Like try and follow the same kind of pattern of requests as a user would use a user would send. Sorry, when they're talking to your service, and then make sure that each of the responses that your service sends back across like an entire set of actions like like you you're taking a slightly higher level view than a single request here so like mm. you'd try and go through the entire byflow purchase uh byflow process so you'd like load up a, a search page then try and search for a result and then go to the details page for that and then try and add it to your cart and then try and check out and then like send have like some kind of special thing with your system where the the synthetic client could use a a fake credit card number and a fake name and that would um not actually execute the purchase in the system but it would do all the things necessary to test if that worked and then send back a correct result mm. and then you'd have an slo based on that and so if you if the synthetic client that tried to do this like once a minute was green then um you know you, you know that your users are most likely able to buy things on your store and they can go through all of the steps they need to take to buy things on your store yeah. Ah, yeah, we, we, we do have synthetic clients. <laughs> so we, we measure, um, yeah, we, that, that's what we, uh, yeah, as you said, it's, it's quite a lot of work to implement them. Yes, very much so. Um, and, um, yeah, and yeah, the, the thing is, yeah, it's, it looks like a good combination to have uh, synthetic clients, which probably cannot catch everything, you know, if, if you only have a problems for users uh, which are from France or something like that, yeah, you, you cannot catch everything. So you probably need uh, a combination of synthetic clients and uh, measuring directly at the load balancer. Absolutely. Um, the, like the big, the yeah. biggest problem with synthetic clients, the major drawback in my opinion, is that um, you can't measure really, really high availability with them because they only like unless you have them sending like hundreds of QPS to your service. Like you don't have mm. enough data points across like a twenty-eight day window 
to really measure high availability. Um, I'm not going to try and do maths while talking <laughs> because it's always a danger. But, um, there's 14, 440 minutes in a day, and there's 28 days in a usual like in a an SLO window. So like measuring four nines is only just like it only takes a couple of um, failures, a couple of request failures across a whole 28 day window to put you out of SLO for the entire 28 days, and like yeah, yeah. that's not the kind of the level of sensitivity you want really. Hmm. Yeah, and, and another thing I see with um, synthetic clients is if you if you are in multiple regions. So let's say we have a data center in Europe and one in the US and one in let's say Australia or something, maybe China, maybe you know something in, in South Africa. Yeah. And your let's say your load is not equally distributed. So lots of customers are in, in China and lots of like like 80% are, are in China and the US and then you have a small portion in Europe and a small portion in Australia and a very little portion in South Africa. And if if I need to I would need to do some weighting with my with my synthetic clients or would I would I measure like each data center alike like um, I, I look at the availability per data center and not for the whole application. Does it make sense what I'm saying? It does. Um, I think you'd probably want to just kind of agglomerate everything together. Like, I, I don't. What what kind of problems are you running into when you're? What's what's the the problem with synthetic clients not um, sending? Is it because you're expecting so much more traffic to come from China? You want your synthetic client near China to be sending more traffic as to be more representative. Yeah, exactly. So let's say uh, for in China we have ten times more customers than in South Africa, um, and then if I want to look at the overall availability of the whole application across the globe, then uh, I cannot just you know I, I can look at all the requests from all the all the data centers when I look at the load balancer, but when I send synthetic uh, requests. It should the synthetic request should somehow uh, represent in the overall picture the the part of the region I'm looking at. So if China has ten times more traffic than South Africa, um, in order to do some weighting, the I need to send ten times more synthetic traffic to China than to South Af Africa. That, that's so uh, that's the thing. I, I I'm not sure that's really. Uh, so the thing to remember is that the synthetic users aren't real users which is what one of the other reasons why you need to also have your load balance metrics like mm. um, if you're like um the, because they're not real users they they're not they're an appro they're, they measure like a proxy for user experience they're not measuring the actual user experience again just like a lot of the other slis we have so um i would say that it's fine for each a synthetic client near each of your data centers to be sending requests to that data center and like be sending a constant level of requests because it's a separate SLI and like your it will give you an idea of your availability. It's not like nothing is a hundred percent accurate. Like hundred percent is you know the wrong target, as with SLOs themselves. Um, so you're going to have two different signals. One of them is going to tell you whether your users are receiving bad response codes, one of them is going to tell you whether your synthetic clients can follow your user journeys. 
um, that's good enough coverage. And I don't, I don't know whether you need to wait the synthetic client. Mm. What, okay. What, okay. what, what particularly are you trying? What problem are you trying to solve with the waiting that isn't solved already by the synthetic clients? Um, yeah, I I want to understand the overall availability of, of a certain feature across the globe with synthetic clients. And if only, let's say, South Africa has a problem and all the other regions do not have a problem, um, you know, you could say that uh, my availability is looking at the synthetic client. The availability would be 99.9%. But actually, it's not true because it's higher because I have in all the other regions um, more customers which are accessing the page. So, and this is specifically for a problem that is only caught by the synthetic client failing, and not the um... exactly, yeah, yeah. Okay, I can I can see that. So it it would artificially, um... so one way I I would say that instead of trying to deal with that by having the synthetic clients um, send more requests, I would try to deal that when you aggregate the data center level availabilities to a global availability for your service. So you you um, instead of aggregating the SLIs together by summing the um, total number of requests sent and the total number of um, good replies for each synthetic client, um, turn each one into a data center level SLO. So you get the, like your South African availability, you get your Chinese availability, you get your American availability, and then um, you weight those when you create an aggregate SLO. And, yeah, yeah. And I think I think I think that will. A, it's going to be easier because you don't have to do different things with your like different synthetic clients. So it means you're you're operate operationally when you're running these in production, they don't look different, which means that life is easier for you. And mm. B, like that 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 kind of maths is the kind of thing that your monitoring system should be able to do relatively easily. You're, like you just have a a table of um, constants which you multiply each of the um, requests, like each of the availabilities by before you. Um, then sum them to the global level. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, that was. Uh, yeah, it's it's a difficult uh, problem. Like a, a, a deep dive into a very specific problem. I don't know how many listeners will have that problem. Well, but, so you uh, you can generalize yeah. it to say what well, like your problem there is trying to aggregate the availabilities. I mean, aggregating SLOs is quite a difficult thing. Um, it's something that, um, like, I don't think Google has great answers for in a lot of cases. So um, there, there's a few different strategies for it. Like, you can aggregate at the SLI, you can aggregate at the SLO, and there's another another approach we've taken a couple of times is to turn everything into a bad a bad minute thing. So each each individual SLO, whether that SLO is good or bad, uh, is just kind of turned into a boolean, and then like your aggregate SLO is either good or bad, depending on how many of the individual components are good or bad. So like you can okay. say for, for this minute, this, this minute is a good minute. If all of the component SLOs are, are within, you know, they're, they're performing well. And it, this is a bad minute. If any one of the, or any two of the um, component SLOs is bad. Oh, okay. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, you, uh, in the beginning of your of your answer to my synthetic client waiting question, um, you, you mentioned um, no, it was actually the answer uh, of the you know synthetic 
uh, clients in general. Mm. When you said, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty coarse grain and it's, you know, if you have a measurement window of 28 days, um, we haven't talked about measurement windows. So, um, how do I calculate if I met my SLO or not? Yeah. So you, you already gave a few examples here, but, um, yeah, I, I, I want to, uh, um, discuss now more, you know, what, what measurement window should I, should I look at, uh, in order to say I met my SLO or not? Well, I, I keep throwing the number 28 days around and like, um, we've, uh, we found this one tends to work well because, um, like it depends what you're trying to achieve with your SLO, but generally, um, one of the goals I think is to set up that feedback loop that we discussed earlier about trying to modulate your development velocity. Uh, because you're like dependent on your services reliability. So your, um, your developers can go kind of gung ho on features, do whatever they want, as long as you've got plenty of error budget to burn. But when you start getting low on error budget, you need to start tilting the overall, um, stance of your engineering organization towards, you know, fixing the bugs, burning down the post-mortem action items, pushing for more reliability rather than going all out on features. And, um, the thing about, um, this kind of changing of engineering stance is like it your organization can't react that quickly like you can't measure like you can't change what you're doing every week that tends to be too short of a time i know a lot of people do agile and often there's like a two-week sprint thing and if you do a two-week sprint thing then that's sometimes then maybe just 14 days rather than 28 days can be good because like you like one of the inputs to your sprint planning could be um okay so over the last two weeks were we in slo or not if we weren't in SLO over the last two weeks, then, hey, the next sprint is going to be more reliability work rather than less reliability work. Um, mm. And four weeks is two sprint cycles, <coughs> but it's also, it's approximately a month. Um, and, you know, months are, and they're, they're a nice human construct and it works well with organizations to think about things in terms of months and quarters because, like, the business tends to operate in months and quarters. But um, the problem with using actual months is that they aren't all the same length. Um, and often it means that there are five weekends rather than four weekends in a window if you have a month. And this is another source of the variability that I've said that you don't really want to have in your SLOs, uh, especially if your business does lots of business on the weekend or does lots of business during the week and is like dead during the weekend. Um, that, that, that kind of variability where you've got five of these things in the, in the window rather than four can make your SLO jump up and down a lot. Um, also, if you... If you aren't doing like super agile uh, daily delivery type things, if you have like one release build a week, then you'll find that your release day is a source of uh, SLO error budget burn. And if you have five release days in your window rather than four, then it's going to look worse because, you know, mm. your release mm. naturally are an increased source of errors. So like that's that's why like... um I kind of push 28 days as a good starting point in the art of SLOs, but you can you can use a lot of shorter windows as well. Like if you if your goal isn't to um, tr change the engineering stance of your organization, but it is to say trigger some kind of operational response because you know things are on fire, then using a window like an hour or 12 hours can can be really helpful because those respond quickly to periods of increased errors and. Um, like you can look at your error budget burn over say a one hour window and say if if it's like m many multiples of your error budget in, the, in an hour you probably want to have someone go and do something about that 
before your 28-day error budget is gone and you have to then go and do the whole um, changing of stance and making people mm. work, work more on bugs and reliability. And um, how do you... I mean, if, if I have a 28 days error window, um, that's obviously a rolling window, I guess. Right? It's not a static one. It's like always rolling. Yes. Um, and... I can't and then I'm, I'm wondering how do, you know, some people just want uh, reports and, uh, you know, a management report. How did uh, my, um, how did my service do over the past quarter or month? Yeah. So that, that's, that's, yeah. How, how would I solve that? I mean, because the, the, obviously a month or quarter, as you explained, is not really a good, uh, measurement window. Well, so, um, Reporting tends to be something that you do separate to um, separate to this. Like uh, uh, people shouldn't chain. People should be willing to react more quickly than waiting for the next report if things are bad. Mm. Um, yeah. And that, yeah. that's the nice thing about a rolling window is that it it is it's better because it provides that continuous measurement and it better matches the experience of your users. And like if you're with a static window for like the purposes of choosing what your organization is doing, your error budget resets. Like, hey, it's the first, it's the first of December today. Um, like, suddenly we had a, let's say we had a massive, massive outage yesterday. Um, today we have a fresh clean slate, no error budget, uh, no error budget burnt at all. The last month looks terrible, like it's a, just a, a sea of red, but today everything's fine. That's not how your users see it. Like, they're still going to be smarting from yesterday's outage. They're still going to be, you know, moaning on Twitter or whatever. Um, <laughs> so that, that you're, when you use a, a static calendar window, you're not, like, representing your user's experience as well as you could. But, like, I understand that the, the management chain, they want reports. They want to see, okay, November was bad. Like, why was November bad? Why, do I need to dig into this? Do I need to go and have a meeting with somebody? Um, and so you can absolutely build static reporting so like on the 1st of december you have a like a cron job that runs and goes and crawls over all of the logs for november and produces a very detailed report for the consumption of like higher up people in your organization that's fine that like by all means do that but i don't think it's good to um mm. for for the continuous measurement for the the um the things that you make like the day-to-day -day engineering decisions on i think the continuous measurement is an important thing to have Thank you for listening to this second episode. Please also consider listening to the third and final episodes uh, with Alex, um, where we cover error budget policies, when to improve or not on your reliability, developing and communicating and sharing an error budget policy. And we finally discuss alerting on service level objectives. Look at your burn rate, not on single problems. See you then.